Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we talk with Kraft Analytics Group Chief Executive Officer Jessica Gelman. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. And let's start with the Mavericks. There are a lot of topics to talk about. Let's take one of the biggest ones The Mavericks have hired an outside counsel to investigate allegations of inappropriate conduct by former team presidents. So let's talk about that. Well, people were wondering, when is this going to really permeate the sports world? Well, here we go. A Sports Illustrated investigation had found that Terdema Ussery, the former president of the team, uh, did at at least reportedly uh, engage in behavior that uh, warranted dismissal. The question here is, what did the owner of the team know? When did he know it? If he didn't know, why didn't he know it? That's where this is all centers now, because Mark Cuban, he said he's made a mistake and that he kept an abuser on the staff, but he didn't know he separated the business side of the operation from the basketball side of the operation. Is that okay these days? Does the buck stop with the owner, Evan? That abuser is a is a Mavs.com beat writer, I believe, who had a few domestic violence issues. So it's, that, but it's that not, Cuban says you could see if it was like a star player that you try to protect. I mean, this is a Mavs.com beat writer. So this is not somebody who was so important to the organization. We've seen a lot, a number of mea culpas from Cuban. There there may in fact be more. He told SI that, that he had, as, as this Me Too movement was taking hold across the country, had gone to his director of HR and said, listen, are we, is there anything we need to be worried about in our past, in our history? And, that, and, he, and Cuban claims that he was told, no, we're fine. Uh, so there is obviously something going on within the organization, some kind of cover up some kind of, of lying, some kind of mistrust. Um, but but yes, I mean, a, a, as you and I have talked about, there's every CEO, every team owner, every team president, I imagine, is looking at this and, and once again, maybe going to their own people and saying, what do we have? What do we need to do? Do we need an independent counsel? Do we what, what can we do to make sure yeah, where was we the have failure? something in our past, we get ahead of it or, or, and make sure I know about where it? Where was the failure from Mark Cuban here? Was it not establishing a direct chain to himself because he's the owner? He needs to know what's going on. Was it separating himself from the business operation? Was it just taking somebody, even though it's your HR head's word for it? We do know some franchises have engaged in preemptive investigations. When, if this is so important and you deem it important, why not engage a firm to come in and look into it instead of just relying on what's already been there? Ussery was with the team from 1997 to 2015. 
And there's another topic involving the Dallas Mavericks. And this is for comments that Mark Cuban made during a podcast with Hall of Famer Julius Erving. Yeah, we don't get this. That I feel very yeah, strongly. We, we don't get this. That, that Mark Cuban goes out and talks about, well, perhaps our best course of action right now is to lose. Because we're not winning anything. We want to get a better draft pick. We have had teams in this league engage in this, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, process for some time. Everybody knew what the Philadelphia 76ers were doing. They actually ultimately had to get rid of their general manager, the architect of the process, Sam Hinkie, because it was so blatant what they were doing. But to find him for talking about what is clearly done by other franchises is a little baffling. So Cuban gets fined $600,000 by the NBA for, for comments detrimental to the league. As Scott said, every fan out there knows that, that there are teams that do this. Adam Silver and, and the NBA have, it, have it admitted that the way the bylaws are set, the way the system is set up right now, it rewards teams to do this. There is an incentive to do this. You could even argue that it's smart business. Uh, to, to then find someone over half a million dollars because he admits to it seems like a a silly course of action. Well, part of it, too, is that the podcast aired the day of the All-Star game in Los Angeles. So Where where they try so hard for four quarters. No tanking in the All-Star game. (laughs) Lots of defense. A little late-game defense in this one, though. (laughs) Finally, another topic. Hey, the Olympics. Let's talk about uh, Lindsey Vaughn. Let's talk about the can, uh, the Canadian hockey team losing to the U.S. women's hockey team. And all of that is helping ratings. Well, good for NBC. They ought to send a little thank you note to Lindsey Vaughn and the U.S. women for making some compelling programming that people, names they recognize uh, in sports they show an interest in that they really wanted to see. Numbers ticked up there. Now you wonder... In the home stretch, can can that momentum stay? If what NBC really wants heading into the Olympics is for the U.S. delegation as a whole to do really well at the Olympics, uh, this has not been a great games for that. I, I, I think the USA has underperformed from a medal standpoint. But the U.S. women's team, uh, very popular, great story. They had a great game, uh, gold medal game against Canada that went to went to a shootout starting at 11 10 p.m. Eastern time <laughs> which I stayed up and watched every single minute of <laughs> which I tried to stay up and <laughs> failed miserably curling fans out there Michael Barr I know yeah. you're one of them uh, USA a, over a Canada. big upset over Canada in, in the semifinals uh, there is a lot that is shaping up for NBC do you believe in ratings yes Okay, I'm sorry, Al Michaels. Wow. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I apologize. Don't just apologize to Al Michaels. Apologize to every listener. Wow. Yes, thank you. <laughs> our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. Now for our interview with Kraft Analytics Group Chief Executive Officer Jessica Gelman. That name today, Jessica Gelman. She is the CEO of Kraft Analytics Group. She is also Michael, the co-founder of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference going on this weekend in Boston. Jessica, thank you very much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be on the show. I'm also an avid listener. Tell your friends. <laughs> I'll, I'll announce it this week This week on stage at the Sloan Conference. How about that? Look at you. So you know how to promote, too. I told you she was really good, Michael. I told you she was really good. Let us start there. We're going to get to Kager, Craft Analytics, in a minute. But I do want to start with the Sloan Conference. This has been going on, what are we on, 12 or 13 years now? This is the 12th conference, but we've been running it for 13 years. Okay, Tell me what it was then, and I know because I was there, but I'd like to hear it from you because you have to do it all, what it was then and what it has become. (laughs) 
That's a great question. What it was then, probably in September of 2006, Daryl and I, Daryl Morey, who's the GM of the Houston Rockets, we had been teaching a class at Sloan. When he got the job at the Rockets, we kind of pivoted. We said, let's make this a conference. So the first year, we had been talking about it for maybe five months and then kind of went go in September of 2006 and pulled the conference together in four months. And we had about 130 people there. I kind of joke that 20 or 30 of them were my friends. So um, some of Daryl's friends, too, of course. Bar couldn't scape, and, scrape together 20 friends. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I got about three, and I owe them money. <laughs> Not with that voice, you don't. And we... We had one or two panels that would be going on simultaneously, but we didn't have any of the extra other activities that we have going on today um, at the conference. So, I mean, it was really small. And, of course, this year we'll have 3,500 folks at the conference. We'll have 37 panels, many of them running concurrently. We will also have competitive advantage talks where people who are in the industry doing the work are sharing what they're doing analytically and kind of how they're getting there. We have research papers. We have six different competitions going on, uh, everything from a hackathon to fantasy uh, challenge that DraftKings is presenting to a startup competition. So the scope of what we're doing is much broader. And and I like one of the things I I probably should stop saying this because we passed this this threshold a few years ago, but we have obviously many more speakers at the conference this year than we had attendees. And let me jump in, though. Don't ruin the surprise here, because I'm always impressed with the speaker list, and it goes commissioners, it's CEOs, that's great. But you managed to top yourself this year. You and Daryl will be (laughs) co-interviewing, go ahead, you you say it. President Barack Obama. Now, how'd you get that guy? I mean, to be honest, Daryl and I have been working on uh, trying to have President Barack Obama come for for many years. We know he's a huge sports fan. He's also very analytically oriented. I've been doing a little reading to prep for for the interview, and just you know, I read the Consequential President, which came out not not too long ago. But in there, there's a bunch of stuff on how he's using analytics to make decisions. So for us, it it really was a natural fit. Um, we had Reggie Love, who was. Uh, very close with the president. He's been coming to Sloan for a while. So, you know, we thought we had a pretty good chance. We were hoping anyways. And, um, you know, he's now had a little bit of a break from the craziness of the eight years of being president. So we are just thrilled to have him coming to the conference. And as you might imagine, since we announced in January that he's coming, the demand has been crazy. I'm just amazed how sports analytics has developed from the old Moneyball film. Even then, that was like, wow, look at all of this, until today. Why has it grown so much? Well, I think first and foremost, the amount of data that is available is is astronomical. I mean, here's just a couple of quick stats for you, but the amount of data that's been created uh, in the past two years is equivalent to 90% of all data that's ever been created. I think first and foremost, there's just a lot more information available, which means that there's a lot more opportunity to do the analytics. And then I think people are, are actually finding competitive advantage in in the work that they're doing, both on the business and on the team side. And so folks are doubling down and investing even more in trying to become more analytically oriented. I mean, you look at the folks who you know, won titles this year, you have obviously the Eagles who 
have have been have been very much at the forefront on the football side for a long time with using analytics and they just won their first title in 85 years the same is the case for the Houston Astros they had never won a title and they are it's well known how much they do with analytics so i think you're seeing just this impact for especially teams that have never won before investing in this space and then getting the results i was just going to say the old days of well i'm going by instinct and i'm going by my nose those days are gone. I, well, I think it's actually a really it's a really great thing that we've seen, especially at the conference over the past few years, because the the data can only tell you so much, and there is a lot of value in the experience. And gut instinct is, I mean, your brain and the ability of your mind to take a bunch of information is is among the most powerful tools that we all have at our disposal. Wait, when you say your brain, you're not specifically talking about Michael Parr. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> got to go by my nose. That's it. <laughs> I don't know him well enough to be able to make those statements. <laughs> but, but, no, I mean, I think we have, we've definitely come to a reckoning where, and actually a big theme of the conference this year is around talk data to me, which is, how do you take all this information and distill it into something that people can understand and, and is easily digestible? And that's, and that's a big challenge for folks, especially people who are trying to understand analytics. And we have the, this young group of, of executives that are coming up who really have been exposed to analytics their, their entire career. And we're, it's kind of like a period of reckoning, I would say, right now. We are chatting with Jessica Gilman, and my God, how many titles? We're the CEO of the Kraft Analytics Group, co-founder of MIT Sloan Sports Analytic Conference. Oh, by the way, congratulations. Also recently announced to the 16-member class of the Legends of Ivy League Basketball. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Go Harvard, right? Yeah, that, go Harvard. I'm, I'm obviously incredibly honored to to be selected it's a great it's it speaks as much about the great teams that i played on as the level of involvement i've had with harvard since i ran the friends group for for six years and i just i love i take my my two sons to games still um and they just have so much fun they don't really understand basketball but they enjoy it so i'm really excited to go down to to philadelphia in a couple of weeks to watch the Ivy League tournament. It's only the second time they've hosted this Ivy League tournament, so it'll be a lot of fun. And by the way, they're selling big-time sponsorships now in the Ivy League, so it's interesting to see they're catching up to the rest of the athletic world. But Jessica, I always hear that collecting the data is easy. Deciding what to do with it is the hard part. Do you find that to be true? Um, well, I'm laughing because I would say collecting the data is the hard part. <laughs> no, that's not um, what Zuckerberg says because everybody seems to give it to him. Well, that that's true. I guess I would say collecting the data in terms of having all of these disparate data sources and being able to bring them into a, a really a data warehouse or any data management tool to be able to, to do the analysis is the hard part. So for Zuckerberg, he has kind of one system, right? But for sports organizations, especially on the team side, you have a ticketing system, you have your marketing automation tool, you have your CRM, you have you know, your point-of-sale systems in stadium. So there's, I mean, and those are just kind of big, big ones. But generally, you're going to have an organization needing to pull information in from anywhere from 10 to 30 different systems. And that is complicated to ensure that the data that was in your source system is the same as the data that you're looking at uh, once it's you have that kind of single view of your customer and single view of your data operations. Tell no. me if I'm getting too nerdy for you. Excuse me, didn't Bill Simmons dub this conference Geekapalooza? 
You, <laughs> you cannot get nerdy enough. I think our listeners like nerdy. We're good. Dorkapalooza. Oh, it's Dorkapalooza. Oh, that's much better than, than Geekapalooza. They're, they're, so, they're, stick with nerdy and dorky. We're, we're all good. <laughs> Dorkapalooza. I still, I still laugh at it. Um, that was the second year of the conference. There, I, I think I was there. But sh- should I feel badly for the kid who is going to the sports management program right now? Because everybody seems to be coming into pro sports with Harvard MBAs these days. I mean, that's seemingly where the world is headed. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, I appreciate that perspective, but I don't, I don't think that's true. There's a lot of different types of work that need to be done, and at the end of the day, when you're, when you're coming to an event at a venue, it's about the customer experience. And understanding the customers through data is certainly one avenue, but having been on kind of the other side during my time with the craft sports and entertainment group, you know, there's, it's very much about how bad are the lines getting in, what is the traffic like, how quickly are they getting their food, what is the in-game experience in terms of the, the music that's playing. And so there's, it's about creating an experience. Data can help inform and provide perspective and direction on where you might have pain points and where there might be opportunities. But that's really only a part of the equation. You still actually have to take that data and drive it to improving that overall customer experience. And there's always going to be a really significant need for creative people, for people who are really good with customer service. I'm not suggesting that analytic people are not good with customer service. I'm just saying it might not be you know, the, the focus that they have. So I do on the sports management side, though, I, I would say that I think there is a more analytic uh, slant to it. And the last thing I would just say on, on this in particular is that you need to kind of understand analytics and the concepts around it. You don't necessarily have to do it, though, if that makes sense. What I don't understand is... Hold on, this talk, is going to be a long yeah, list. Yeah, this might be a long <laughs> list, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming in with an abacus and a slide rule. <laughs> a baseball game Bar, is, we only have 14 more minutes. <laughs> baseball, I love the abacus reference. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a baseball game has always been a baseball game. A basketball game has always been a basketball game. But we have changed as a society without getting philosophical, I guess, why? Why have we changed? I mean, again, I think it's because the data is available. And so, well, this, I mean, I would just say this. In general, there's always going to be progression and innovation. And again, if you look at the S&P 500 today, what 88% of the of the companies that are now in the S&P 500 were not there in 1955 when it when it kind of launched and so the point is that today we have data that's available it helps inform and tell stories which which are which customers like and that is important and i think ho- holistically i think the ESPN who's been a long sponsor of the Sloan conference you know, they were really at the at the forefront. They have a stats and information group that has hundreds of people. So when you tune into ESPN or any of the channels, they are sharing data about what you are seeing on the field, and that's informative. So even a couple years ago, when the Patriots came back and, and beat the Falcons, there was that um, analysis that had been done that it was 99.6% chance that they wouldn't that that wouldn't happen. That piece of information is a story 
that's compelling to the to the fan watching or listening at home. Was it really ninety nine point six percent? I mean, I don't know. I mean, they won, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're seeing a lot of streaming services now use mm-hmm. that data to entice more customers to their service. Yeah, I think that the direct-to-consumer, obviously with OTT, it's been huge, but you're also seeing it with companies like Fanatics. And even with Ticketmaster, once they launch presence, having that information specifically about your customer and what they're buying to be able to tailor and communicate to them is you know, really what where it's been a huge focus of mine for a good 10 or 11 years at this point in time. And and I think, real, to be honest, like it was something that I saw Facebook was doing, obviously Amazon was doing, and kind of trying to bring that into the sports industry. And as those organizations have continued to grow in their scale and in their scope and in their impact, it's not surprising that folks in sports would continue to try and, and emulate those capabilities. Plus, on the OTT side, I mean, I think we all know that Amazon is coming. And Josiah is coming. It's, I mean, the executives from these companies are now investing in pro sports, which will only further push the use of analytics in the medium or in the entertainment world. Well, yeah, and I think that's true. And even at the conference this year, we have Ted Leonsis, who obviously uh, was very impactful during his time, time at AOL. And he's been at the forefront with monumental sports in terms of what he's in terms of creating the OTT network that they have. And so, yeah, I, I think that sports is something that people relate to, they have interest and passion for, and so it's not at all surprising that folks are coming from other industries and then driving impact and change in sports. We are chatting with Jessica Gilman, the CEO of the Craft Analytics Group, and Jessica, can you give us some concrete examples of what the Patriots, the revolution, what you've done, what you've gleaned from the data and the changes that have been implemented with the teams? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, again, this has been something the crafts are, are as you know, incredibly entrepreneurial um, and really innovators in the space. And so this was an investment starting to think about data and analytics that um, we undertook really in the, in the early 2000s. And so the kind of basic stuff that everyone's doing today that we were really doing, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago around pricing and customer segmentation and retention modeling, um, and then we've really taken it, it to, I think, to the next level when it comes to inventory management, looking at, for example, on the sponsorship side of the business, how can you potentially identify a sponsor uh, through one, one action in a, in a different part of the business? So, like, the example I like to give here is we have a whole process of moving our customers through the business, and we had someone who had purchased um, a rather – large autographed large or expensive autographed item in in our pro shop and that person as part of their kind of onboarding and trying to cross sell them across the organization they received a series of communications one of them was to sign up for the patriots waitlist they signed up for the patriots waitlist as part of that communication for the waitlist they're also asked if they're interested in buying a premium product this person indicated that they were then that list uh, and that contact was then shared with our premium group. And that person ultimately bought club seats. And then from there, we identified that that person was actually the president of Samsonite, and they became a sponsor of, of the organization. And so that's kind of like a very good example of you're creating the right processes, you're creating the right targeting of your customers to move them around and identify them. So we didn't even have like a first touch point of 
you know, where they're receiving a phone call until five or six steps into the process. So most franchises like to keep their proprietary stuff private. You're doing better than everybody else. Why don't we just keep these secrets in-house? However, the crafts have chosen to put you in charge of a unit that helps everybody else out. Who else are you working with, and why are they sharing all of this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, some of the most well-known organizations that we're working with are the Philadelphia 76ers, who, of course, are incredibly innovative. They're trusting your process. Yeah, and and they've found great success uh, already in terms of just the ability to take take a process. So this is a good example. They they had a a process of collecting names in venue, and then to actually get that information into their um, into their data warehouse and ultimately to their sales reps to call those people was like a a four day process for them, and we have made it a two to three hour process for them. And so from 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 the sales rep perspective, obviously they're getting a much warmer lead, and from the customer experience, it's much more top of mind. So, um, you know, they're very innovative. We're also working with folks like Mississippi State, so we have a presence in the college space, and and they've they've been very progressive too. And the college space in general is actually behind the professional sports um, world, and a lot of that is because of the lack of um, resources that they have and. Um, but so, for example, for, for Mississippi State, they, we've provided them with kind of stadium maps with pricing, and they've used that to actually they, they, they altered pricing, whether increasing or decreasing, in like 85% of their uh, bowl for football this year. And the way that they were able to get that kind of through, through their director of athletics is that they had this great visual to tell the story, right? So that's kind of that earlier topic that we were talking about. And the end result for them is they're expecting about, you know, 1.5 million increase in their their net revenues. But more than that, they're already seeing they're about 15 days into their renewal period. They're seeing that the renewal is happening at a higher rate because the the pricing is done correctly for the value of what people are paying for. So those are just a couple of examples. So I think kind of your question about the secret sauce, um, you know, as, as an industry, we need to continue to move forward or we're going we're gonna to lose the customer. Um, overall, I'm really concerned about the presence and growing nature of the, of the secondary market and, you know, for rights holders to take ownership of, of their fan and be communicating and connecting directly with them is, is really important. And a lot of that is about really understanding your customer and, and, and making sure you're focusing on improving their experience. We're talking with the CEO of Craft Analytics, Jessica Gelman. And this world of sports analytics and gambling go together. And it, we, and now it's really about ready to explode because the Supreme Court is likely, according to experts, rule that you can gamble on sports across the nation. There is a lot of money involved in this, not only for the analytics involved for the gambler, obviously, looking for the data, but the people that provide the data and the gambler who wants to buy this. Can you talk us through that? Sure. Well, actually, we have um, a great panel at Sloan this year, and we actually have Ted Olson uh, coming to the conference. Uh, I can explain who he is if, if for folks. He, he's the one who's leading the charge um, for, for New Jersey, which is going to you know rule pr- pr- relatively soon. And 
the kind of I, I read this the article about Adam Silver kind of alluding to one percent, um, kind of a one percent of of the total gambling. Everybody uh, was dollar. on the same page <laughs> until that that came out that they wanted an integrity fee. Yeah, no, and I I, I actually thought it was it was a very interesting concept um, because it, it there is IP surrounding what what the leagues um, you know have are managing and and trying to drive value in. I, I, that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But I think as as someone who is very focused on on the data and the consumer, it's to me it's just another touch point of information to better understand to better understand the fans. And you know, you see not that daily fantasy is gambling, but you see the amount of interest in daily fantasy and what that's driven in terms of in terms of engagement and you know, gambling will just continue to do that. And not to mention, I mean, internationally, gambling is part of the sport, especially with, you know, with the Premier League. Well, really? IP, by the way, intellectual property. And I believe the Attorney General of New York deemed Daily Fantasy was gambling. Eric Schneiderman. Yeah, Eric point. Schneiderman said, yeah. said it was. I mean, that's what kicked all this off. Jessica, let me ask you this. Is everything the teams do now, and you had the Patriots, for instance, had that 24-7 network at the Super Bowl, but people, mm-hmm. of course, have to sign up. Every touch point is an opportunity for you and your colleagues to learn more about the customers. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as someone, again, within, within the craft group in the early days, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of focus on anytime we touch a customer, how do we capture that information? It's, it's obviously much more pervasive today than it, than it was in, you know, 2006 or 2007. But that was just, you know, if, you're, if someone is coming to training camp, how, how can we capture their contact information? So in some cases you have teams that, do, that are ticketing training camp. They might not be charging people to come to training camp, but they're providing a ticket so that they can capture that, that customer's name. And, um, you know, there's tons of different loyalty programs. I think the biggest thing where teams need to be focusing on and, and has been a big focus for the Patriots and the Revolution is you have a finite number of people who actually can come and see a game. How do you capture all those other fans outside of, you know, outside, outside of who are watching on TV or engaging in other ways? And so the, what, what the Patriots did and really – led by Jonathan around the Super Bowl was incredibly impressive. And, you know, I was kind of just saw it, um, obviously, and was on the outside looking in in that case. But it was it was brilliant. The content was actually awesome as well. So I was really impressed with what um, what the organization was able to put together. Well, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. <laughs> and obviously, they it's need some more of these analytics. Man. So they need, to, they need to go through this. I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about other teams buying this information have you had any reluctance to it from some teams no it's a great question um i think people are trying to you know make sure at this point now that we have folks across we're working with you know organizations in so many of the other parts of the of the sports business you know on location experience is also a big um partner of ours we we had john john collins was on the show before the super bowl yeah, and 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 John Collins is, has done an unbelievable job growing on location and with the acquisitions, and just a great vision for what he's trying to do with that business. And obviously, he's been doing it for a long time, even back to his days creating the Winter Classic. Um, 
but I think you know people understand that we're we're bringing true and real value to to data and strategy using that data to to really drive impact um, and I, and I think you know we've been working closely with on location for quite some time and so I, I don't I don't see that anymore I think it was a concern at the beginning but the reality is is that you know the Patriots and the revolution they're they're one of our clients but we have a lot that that we're managing today and you know we're we're a you know a pretty big size uh group in terms of growth that we've had uh in the past two years since we spun out and lastly for you jessica is it easier to reach the fans of tomorrow and everybody is trying to figure out how to reach the millennials because they're so attached to the phone that digital piece that touch point that no problem here's my credit card here's my birthday here's my address is it easier to reach the fans of tomorrow to understand who they are? Well, this is really where the rights holders, the teams, and the leagues need to make a pretty big a pretty big statement soon. Because if you look at what Facebook has done or Twitter, like they're not actually allowing you to communicate directly with that customer. Mm-hmm. You buy advertising with, with those companies. And that's going to be the big challenge, which is, can teams and leagues continue to communicate directly with those millennials if if those millennials are not using email? And so email is still king today in terms of communication, but millennials increasingly they're doing all their communication on Snapchat and on you know fa- Facebook Messenger. And so there's there's going to be um, kind of an inflection point, I think, coming in the next two to three years on that specific topic. All right. That's Jessica Gilman, the CEO of the Kraft Analytics Group and the co-founder of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference this weekend. Jessica, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Takeaways from Jessica Gilman. She talked about how they provide the analytics for many companies and I wondered, well, you know, what do other people think about that? But there's the analysis, just like in NASCAR, where they sell engines. One team, a mega powerhouse team, will sell their engines to other teams. And the other teams know you have a quality engine. So I'm assuming the people that buy these analytics know that this is quality data. We can't go one show without you bringing up NASCAR. Of course not. We can't even go one show. Not one. All right. By the way, we, never, we didn't discuss the Daytona 500. You just wait. All right, well, we'll hold on to <laughs> it. My takeaway, I feel big brother, but I understand it. They want all the data. They want to know everything about the customer. Pretty soon, my phone is going to vibrate, and it's going to say, hey, Scott, you're about due for a bathroom visit. You know, if you go to uh, Section 22, there's no line at the bathroom. Now's a good time for you to go because historically, this is a time for you to go when you're at the stadium. But that that's where we're headed. But you're, you're going to see these guys capitalizing in ways we haven't even dreamed of yet. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week, three. No clue. Is that, oh, is that NASCAR? Is that like the driver? Like hey. Okay. Hey. All right. Hey. Come on. Come on. I, who, I have no idea who won. <laughs> I know the diversity candidate came in second. The one that, that fa- that's on the Facebook show. I don't know his name. I apologize. Oh, you're talking about uh, Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace. Bubba he came Wallace. in second. See, I know that. That's great for NASCAR that I know that Bubba Wallace came in second because that's going to reach new audiences. 
So that's good for NASCAR, but I don't know who won. Well, let's give a big salute to Austin Dillon, who is the grandson. Look at that. Not, not only did I know who won, I've never heard of Austin Dillon. Austin Dillon, he's the grandson of Richard Childress, the owner. That, I've heard of, of Richard Childress. Of Richard Childress three. Racing. Yeah, and, and the number three, obviously, was very big because Dale Earnhardt made that number huge. Oh, I didn't want to seem ignorant. I was going to say I thought that was Dale Earnhardt's number. Yeah, no, you're right. You're Maybe right. I know a little something, Bar. Uh, you know a lot. <laughs> You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.